Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 150 for June 26, 2008. Listener feedback number 44. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway, on the web at www.astaro.com. And by audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. And by listeners like you. Thanks for your donations. It's time for Security Now, episode 150, our sesquicentennial episode. Steve Gibson, how are you today? 150. I know. As I was writing that today, I was thinking, yes, yeah. we got six to go and we're at, we're, we cross our three-year mark. That's amazing. Yeah. So uh, today we're going to talk about security. In fact, we've got your questions and uh, Steve's answers. We've got quite a few of them, a dozen great questions. Uh, but before we get to those, let's get an update on it. First of all, any errata or anything you want to cover from uh, last week's episode? Yeah, a few things. I wanted to acknowledge all the people who wrote with the feedback that last week's audio uh, sucked. Yeah, um, apologies. Pretty, pretty much the only word for it. I think it was partly the microphone and partly um, we we're hoping it was the cable modem, meaning that you're switching your end to DSL. And of course, I've got a pair of T1s that ought to hopefully bring down any packet loss. Um, the, the still, we still have the possibility that it might be the fact that there's just video involved and video, you know, competes for audio with, you know, bandwidth. Um, and, you know, it might, it might be winning. Anyway, we're going to try this one. I've got, I'm back to the Heil uh, microphone that I've used for several years. Yeah, that makes a huge yeah. difference. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so I just wanted to acknowledge it. lots of people wrote in to say, hey, just thought you should know uh, the video was I mean, the audio last time was was really bad. So we're working on it. And yeah, uh, I think mostly it was a dry. I mean, I, everybody knows the audio. The microphone didn't sound as good, but it wasn't inaudible. It was, I think, the dropouts. And I'm still hearing a well, little were, bit of that. So I don't know what's going on. Yeah, I'm hearing it from from your end also coming back. Um, several people made the comment I thought was very astute. And that is that you have the Heil. And if I don't, then the difference in the quality of our audio makes it noticeable. That is, you yeah. know, if, no, I throw that out. You know why? Because you're the only one with a Heil in the whole network. And I'm also and I, I also have <laughs> been told, though, that I'm that I've always traditionally sounded better than any of the other. Yeah. Um, netcasts. And in, 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 uh, I'll be honest, I think it's your bandwidth more than anything else. Yeah. It's and, probably the case. And, and I and uh, I, I think we're still having bandwidth issues and I don't I it kills me. I'm not sure why, but we'll figure it out. Skype uh, is funny that way. You know, it'll go great for months, years, and then and then you'll have a bad day, and it's hard to predict. So, but we are on ostensibly the same exact setup we've used before, with one addition, one slight change, as you said, is video. So maybe we'll just stop well, sending yeah. so, video. And and you know, from a, it's important to understand too that that if we if we use less total bandwidth. Then those then those packets have a greater chance of getting through than if we have just many many more packets. So you know statistically, because as we've talked about many times, the internet delivers packets on a 
on a best effort basis, um, as we crank our bandwidth up, we're going to see larger packet loss. So yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe just, you know, it's that internet congestion thing you talked about a few episodes. Yeah. Ago. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to mention that. Um, and, um, oh, and there were some other people who were concerned that, that the audio portion of our podcast was going to be sacrificed at the altar of video. So I just wanted to say that, you know, that's not the case, that we recognize, you know, the number of people listening to the audio far outweighs the number of people watching the video and that at, at, that I'm going to be conscious of that and I won't start holding up charts and, and things so that the people <laughs> who are on the audio channel feel disadvantaged in any way. So I wanted to make that clear also. All right. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think a number of the shows actually, because we're sending so much video now, a number of the shows have become very video centric. The Gizwiz, for instance, uh, Dick's always holding up stuff and saying, hey, take a look at this. <laughs> it's kind of hard when you have a, a camera going. People uh, kind of start paying attention to that. But it is. It's a much well, yeah. smaller audience. And there, there actually were a couple people who are major twit people who wrote and said, hey, you know, um, I've noticed that some of the other podcasts are sort of not really relying on the video, but they're, you know, exactly as you said with, with Dick, you know, he's, I mean, he's having fun with the fact that he's on camera, but people who are listening to audio can't see what he's holding up. Right, so, right. Yeah. It's something I'm aware of. I'm gonna have to think about it. Uh, and I don't, I don't know exactly what to do that on the, the other side of the equation is video has brought a lot more people to the party and, uh, including advertisers. So I'm not, yeah. sure, I'm not sure I want to dump the video either. So we'll have to figure out. A happy medium, shall we say. Yes. So what else is in the security news? Two little blurbs on a, on a, on a recent events in the, um, since last week. Um, there's a weird Microsoft Word problem, believe it or not, with its parsing of bulleted lists. So that if you open a Word document that is that can be crafted to be malicious, it uses a buffer overrun in Word's display of bulleted lists to perform a remote code execution. As far as I know, this is not something that Microsoft has addressed yet or patched, but we can hope that that's on the way. Yeah. And then lastly, there is an unspecified remote code execution problem in all versions of Firefox through and including version 3. There's no patch yet from uh, the Mozilla folks, but I just wanted to to let our Firefox using listeners know that there is a, a known problem which is um, is um, been brought to the Mozilla people's attention that has not yet been fixed. Yeah. There's also been a, a, a Mac Trojan. Did you see that? No, I didn't hear yeah, about that. It's, I'm not sure that, the, you know, the problem is, once again, that the people who report this are the people who make the antivirus software for the Macintosh. So, or, you know, the security software for the Macintosh. So I'm always a little I, bit, you know, suspicious of the whole thing. But this, for the first time, is one that is, in fact, in the wild. Uh, it actually uh, it takes advantage of the uh, a vulnerability in the remote access client. And the fix right now, until Apple patches it, is to turn is to remove this AR uh, D client uh, from your um, uh, system. You can actually just you know zip it up and stick it somewhere else so it won't run. Uh, and unless you're using remote access in the Mac, that's not going to oh. be a problem. Yes, yes, yes. In fact, I did hear about that, and someone posted a note um, asking how it could be that people who were running the Apple um, server 
or service were were less vulnerable. And um, yeah, yeah so I don't anyway, know about I, that. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, w- what I heard was that, or or you know, w- when that was reported, it seemed to me that if the Trojan were trying to, technically, the term is bind. If it was trying to bind to that port, ah. if the port is already open right. and bound to the application, then that will prevent the Trojan that from being sense. able to do so. Yeah. That so makes it sense. is that 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 would explain the fact that. That, you know, something, you know, a, a service running makes you more secure technically than <laughs> than not having it running. So that's exactly what happened. This ARD agent vulnerability was published um, and then immediately somebody wrote a Trojan to take advantage of it and uh, secure the companies that found it. First, it was a secure Mac and then Antigo, both of whom make antivirus solutions for the Mac, uh, talked about this. It does give you it can give you complete access to the Mac, including uh, uh, this Trojan could log keystrokes take pictures with the built-in camera uh, without your knowledge, uh, take screenshots, turn on file sharing. So it is a big vulnerability. Generally, will come in via iChat. Uh, uh, so I guess the key is not to accept files from other people. It's a Trojan. They have to send you an application for this to work, and you have to open it. So don't. Right. And I have to say, Leo, your audio has really improved. Yeah, I think that the, the video was a mistake. I think, well, I think what we can try to do, and we'll try this during our setup um, next week before we begin recording, is perhaps there's some way, and I'll screw around at this end, for me to reduce my upgoing, my, my upstream ah. bandwidth and, you know, not kick it into high quality, high bandwidth mode. Because after all, I mean, I'm, I'm sending 640 by 480 at 30 frames per second. I mean, that's, you know, that's full broadcast quality resolution. And, and the point is that no one... You know, I'm sending it all to you, and then it's being reduced as it goes out through the 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 um, um, you know the redistribution and all that. So it's probably possible to lower the resolution and or the frame rate, or maybe increase the compression without really having the users suffer at all, but also be much more bandwidth sparing. Right, right. Uh, I th- yeah, we'll figure it out. I mean, yep. it's as video is subordinate to audio, and this just shows. I mean, so by turning off the video, the audio is better. That's fine with me. <laughs> we, we don't have to solve it. Uh, 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 several, um, several tens of thousands of security now <laughs> listeners are breathing a sigh <laughs> of relief. So, well, but the thing is, I like to see you. I mean, I think it's fun for people to yep. see you too. And, and we'll it, see if we can. At, at yep. some point, somebody's going to say, "Okay, I want a list of all the books on the bookshelf behind Steve because he has a big, big bookshelf <laughs> behind him." And a lot of books on it, I might say. A wall worth of books. Hey, speaking of books, uh, I just got Neil Stevenson's new book, and I'm really enjoying it. It's called Anathem, and it will be out in September. I got a reader's copy of it, and it's really oh, very good. Cool. I know you're, he wrote Cryptonomicon, which we've talked about before, Yep, um, and is one of uh, my favorite authors. So I'm, I'm reading a paper book, Steve. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it, it feels so, uh, so old-fashioned. I'm trying Only to... because it hasn't yet been read into Audible, I'm sure. Exactly. So. Oh, yeah. In fact, I asked Audible about that, and they said, yeah, we, we, we know a lot of reviewers do listen to Audible for reviewing the books because it's uh, you know, more efficient for them to get the book read. And uh, they said, we, we should really talk to these publishers about when they send out a reader's copy. We could also send out the Audible copy. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, I guess they were, it takes them a while to record these books. This is a big book. Take him a couple of months to record, but they start early. Yeah, I don't think Neil has ever written a small book, has he? <laughs> no, his last I mean, book, you know, Quicksilver. If oh. you go to the if you go to the science fiction museum in Seattle, they have the manuscript. He he hand wrote it in a with a fountain pen, 
and they have all the fountain pen cartridges, all the manuscript paper. Oh, my goodness. It's, it, it's crazy. I don't even, it's nuts, but it's how, that's his process. <laughs> well, whatever works for him. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a nice note from um, a, a, a listener in Hong Kong. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry, in Korea. He's Korean. Um, regarding Security Now and his experiences in Spinrite. Um, he says, uh, Dear Steve, how are you? I am Yonggu Bai. I guess that's how you... It's B-A-E? With the, bai? Bai, bai? yeah, Bai. Yonggu Bai. Yeah. Um, he says, I am a Korean living in China. Oh, living in China. I live in northern part of China, so I live far away from Hong Kong post office. Um of course, referring to our mentioning that as as a, uh, a certificate authority on a number of occasions. Right. And he said, <laughs> he says, so far away from Hong Kong post office. However, it's a malware hot zone nonetheless. Since I am in export import business, I travel a lot. And last year, unfortunately, I got my lap, my laptop bag stolen at Barcelona. So I lost my laptop, digital camera, external hard drive and iPod. It was a big loss and it took. And it took a fortune to replace all of them. So my European trip last year was the most expensive trip ever. Mm. More than three months ago, I learned about Leo's Twit podcasts, and I started to listen to Security Now. I visited your website and downloaded all the episodes and PDF files. And I'm proud to tell you that I'm up to date with your podcast. While I was listening to your podcast, I noticed that you were that Steve Gibson from GRC. (laughs) where I copied perfect passwords for my routers about two years ago and downloaded Securable from about one year ago. I wish I listened to your podcast a little earlier so that I could have prevented the robbery. Nowadays, thanks to you, I use TrueCrypt on my laptop to avoid another unfortunate incident and use Hamachi to connect to my office PC. Since I was a computer science major, I have a lot of hard drives lying around, so while I was listening to your podcast, I decided to buy Spinrite. I will be on a business trip to the U.S. from Thursday, but suddenly, two days ago, when I was working at the office, and it says in parens, yeah, I work seven days a week these days, my wife called me and told me our home PC isn't working. Sure enough, when I went home and turned on the PC, it was only showing Windows Vista logo with green dotted lines moving forever. So I put Spinrite to work using level four, and the next day, voila, the PC was working fine. I've used Spinrite in various hard disks that I own, both by CD booting and using VMware Workstation. And he says, parens, I use 6.5 beta free edition and love it. I noticed that to use I noticed that to use VMware a lot, it's better to have multi-core with lots of RAMs. I use Vista X64, by the way. Thank you for reading my lengthy feedback, and thank Leo and you for a superior podcast. Best regards, Yonggu. Thank you, Yonggu. That was a neat note. I really yeah. appreciate it. Yeah. Really cool. Hey, let me uh, mention uh, audible.com, and then uh, we can um, get to our questions, all 12 of them, unless there's any other uh, security news you want to uh, That covers on. it. That covers it. Audible is our sponsor. We want to invite you to uh, check them out. Get a free book. I was there yesterday, Steve. Boy, it was really fun. Really, really fun to visit them. Do they have like like lots of studios? Yeah. Like little little audio recording booth sort of things? Well, it's interesting because uh, originally the books were recorded by the publishers. 
in their own studios. In fact, what the publishers would do is they'd book studio space in New York City and bring in actors and so forth. And then, or, or William Shatner himself, right? Bring in book authors themselves, and then um, they moved to um, uh, a number of different companies started recording them themselves, like recorded books, books on tape, and the, uh, many of these are licensed by Audible. But Audible now is starting to do a lot of its own recording, and they had uh, I recorded a book. They had six studios, and they have two more online. I think I think they've got eight studios in their Audible uh, uh, main headquarters in Newark. And um, it was really fun. They're good studios, by the way. Oh, boy, did they sound It must good. have been. A, it was it a short book? It was. A very, yes. You, <laughs> yes, it was. Because I was only there a day. So they and it was public domain. So what they, they got a, a, a children, this is a children's fairy tale. So it's about eight pages and uh, a public domain one. And it was it was uh, it was Little Golden Riding Hood. It was the true story of Little Red Riding Hood. And uh, I read it, and I guess they're going to sell it on AudibleKids.com. But it was just really fun to do. Actually, I think they're going to give it away. But it was just really, really fun to do. So, um, they, and they love you, and they very—they really love being part of uh, Security Now. So we have a special URL if you're an Audible, not an Audible uh, listener, and you want to find out what Audible is all about, you can try it for free by going to AudiblePodcast.com slash Security Now, and you can check out any of the, I, just, I found out now there's 50,000 books. They are growing very fast. They acquired a uh, entire science fiction uh, a library. I think, uh, is it Brilliance? I'm trying to remember the name. So their hmm. science fiction has just taken off. You know, you might have noticed that all of a sudden they've got just a lot of science fiction titles. And uh, as you, since you and I are science fiction fans, um, yeah, baby. That's a, yeah, baby, that's a really good thing um, to, to see. Um, just a, a ton of different uh, stuff from uh, some of the best authors uh, out there. Um, I wanted to pick one that was, uh, I was talking with Foy, who's a longtime Audible uh, executive. He's been there since the beginning. And he said, this has been my baby, trying to get um, uh, Audible to have more sci-fi. So he's been working on this from the beginning. And he's, he's, he said he's been reading a lot of Spider Robinson Lately, have you read any of Spider Robinson stuff? Oh, I don't know him at all. Oh, good stuff. So I'm going to recommend some Spider. They have a, the, a complete selection. I guess you probably want to start with. Um, I don't even know. I guess Star Dance would be a good one to start with. Um, it is uh, his stuff is really fantastic, really enjoyable to listen to, and it's not your kind of sci-fi. I think that's probably I was just going to ask. Is yeah, it hard sci-fi? It's not hard sci-fi, but uh, but it. Stardance was a novella which won the Hugo and Nebula Award. And the idea is it's zero. It's, this is why Steve wouldn't like it. It's about dancing in zero gravity. See, he wouldn't like it. You have no interest <laughs> Tell me in you're that. you're kidding. You have no interest in that at all. Uh, yeah. But but I'm telling you, this is this is great stuff. It is really enjoyable. I'll play like Maybe I'll play a little bit. You can see if you like and it. And this qualifies as science fiction? Really? Yeah. No, it's... Oh. Steve, just because it doesn't have, you know, rocket ships and uh, and has well, actually does have rocket ships. Yeah, you had, you had to had to get go had to go find the zero gravity somehow. Shara Drummond was a gifted dancer and a brilliant choreographer, but she could not pursue her dream of dancing on Earth. So she went to space, creating a new art form in three dimensions. And when the aliens see, there's aliens. When the aliens oh. arrived, there was only one way to prove that the human race deserved not just to survive. But reach the stars, oh. and that was Shara's start. It's not your kind of thing, I guess. <laughs> I loved it. All right. Well, I'm going to recommend it anyway. Star Dance 
But it's but look at here's there's plenty of hard sci-fi too. I told him you've got to get Peter F. Hamilton. They said we we only have eight studios. It would take you eight years <laughs> to get even one of his books. No, they're gonna no. I, no I'm just kidding. They, I would love to get some Peter F. Hamilton, but imagine the length of those. Oh yes, that's true. I mean, it would be very hard. You'd have to you'd have to do a lot of reading. Uh, tons of sci-fi, tons of great stuff. They have now this Audible Frontiers section. You might want to check out where you could find a lot of exclusive audio productions from Audible sci-fi productions. They're actually recording their own stuff now. So a uh, lot of great sci-fi in there. Audible podcast, by the way, Snow Crash. As long as we're Ooh, talking yeah, about there Stevenson. We go. They were, they, there was no recorded version of this. So Audible said, we're going to do this. Actually, let me start right over here and say that's my recommendation. You'll go, you can get behind that one, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It is uh, 18 hours. <laughs> just to get you ready for it. Uh, but Audible did it. This is part of their Frontier series, their own recording of this. Uh, if you want to hear, the, I think, the best single first chapter in all of literature. And that's saying a lot. I mean, including, you know, Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This, has the, this starts with such a bang. If you can read the first chapter and put that book down, uh, I, have, I don't understand it. Snow Crash, Neil Stevenson, another good pick. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support of uh, security now. You ready for our first question of the day? Let's go. Let's go. Mark Madison in Paulette, Vermont brings router malware to our attention. Router malware. Steve, the Washington mm-hmm. Post's Brian Krebs. By the way, I read that uh, column a lot. He's very good. Yeah, I think. Brian's a good guy. Yeah. Um, Brian Krebs reports that a new variant of the widespread Zlob Trojan can change DNS settings in your router. So even if you reformat after an infection, as you and Leo recommend, you may still have a problem with your router. I know you've probably covered the basics already, but it might be worth mentioning this extra cleanup step step after a bad infection. Reset your router. Thanks for the great show. Um, I thought that was that was really interesting. You know, we've talked about the need to disable universal plug and play UPNP in routers because of the the virtual certainty that malware is going to begin to use that for router reconfiguration. Um, It turns out that what this Trojan, this Zlob Trojan, uh, this variant of it, apparently it's, it's very widespread. Microsoft reports that they've cleaned off tens of millions of copies of it wow. from people's machines using their, you know, their constantly updating, um, the, is it Defender? I can't remember what they call no, it. No, OneCare, Windows OneCare probably. Unless, well, Defender's spyware. OneCare's their antivirus. Yeah, I think it's just Defender. Um, okay. You know, the one that that er, that everyone just gets and, right. and it, it it's always it's updating itself. Right. Anyway, what, what, what this thing does is it has a huge list of default username and passwords oh. for all the routers in addition to hundreds of other likely pa- uh, passwords. So it's able to see what your gateway IP is. It then, behind the scenes, without you knowing it's doing it, it communicates with your router and try- and knows knows what the default page is and tries to bring up that page and and literally log into the router in the same way that you would as a you know someone admi- doing local administration of the router and of course it turns out that a huge number of people have left their username and password unchanged and i once confessed that i was among those people 
That's since been changed. This is not for a mission-critical router, not inside my network. It's a completely disconnected router over on a cable modem that is that I just have here for for visitors because I don't let anyone touch my network under any circumstances. But, you know, it was the case that I was thinking, ah, you know, I'm, you know, no one can get in until they're in, and you'd have to be in in order to access the inside administration interface of the router. Well, it turns out that... There is a way now, unfortunately, for for if malware gets in, what it does is it it is able to log into the router, change the DNS settings, which means that then and what's the, and this is the other interesting thing is that not only your machine that is the the one that's already infected, but all the other machines that are using DHCP, the you know obtain IP address automatically protocol from the router, every machine within your network will get the DNS from the router, which is reset to um, a malicious DNS server that then causes your browsers to go to the wrong servers whenever wow. they're trying. And why serve. would they so, do that? It's not, it's not a denial of service, they, they, but they inject stuff in. Yes, the idea is that you know you think you're going to PayPal.com and you're going to their PayPal clone mm-hmm. we, uh, site. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Not good. Um, and this one also pops up spyware. It does all sorts of interesting things. It posts spammy forum comments. I mean, it, this is a this is a nasty oh, little bug. It's a busy nightmare. Yes, the chat room is pointing out that it could also have been the Microsoft's malicious software removal tool. They update uh, that. that. That's exact. That's exactly what I was yeah. trying to remember. That, yeah. that that is the name. Yes. So they actually does something because I get those updates all the time. It actually does something. You know, Leo, that was a surprise to me too because I also. <laughs> I, I and I, you don't think it's doing anything. I mean, it's right. certainly not in your face, but it's always every single second Tuesday of the month. Oh, we're going to update the right. uh, malicious software removal tool. And I go, okay, fine, you know. And then it never tells me anything, or you know, seems to be doing anything. But uh, but on the other hand, you and I are being very careful about what we do with our machines. Clearly, tens of millions of other people aren't, and they've got this Zlob Trojan trucking around inside, messing up their networks. I think probably so, Microsoft, I don't know, they don't want to give away a free antivirus, partly because they put themselves out of business with one care. This, yet at the same time, they, they would they love to do, to do something about their horrible reputation from a security right, standpoint. Right, right. Yep. Uh, it, it, I'm looking at their page on Microsoft. It looks for Blaster and Sasser and MyDoom, uh, which, are, which are nasty ones. So I think in a way, if they have something that's looking for worms and Trojans just to, to damp it down, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, you know, just damp down the spread of these things. Brian in Toronto works for internet service providers using something called transparent proxying. He says, "Hi, Steve. I used to work for an ISP where proxy servers weren't just encouraged but enforced. All port eighty traffic ultimately came through their proxy. I came to understand that this is more common now than ever. Usually, the giveaway is stale data that refuses to be purged, even if you try to delete your." temp files you know if you kill your caches and cookies and you reboot and you do the one-legged hop and retry i've found at least one other isp my current one appears to be using transparent proxies now normally this would just be an annoyance but i seem to recall earlier security now episode in which you mentioned ssl traffic terminates at a proxy in last week's episode you mentioned that these invasive isp tracking solutions can't sniff on ssl traffic my question is would this be true even where transparent proxies are in play by that same ISP. I'm still trying to wrap my head around SSL tunnels and have to go back to reviewing older Security Now topics. But in this world of trust no one, TNO, 
I like being extra cautious. By the way, I bought Spinrite, and I think it solved a problem for me. Boot-up issues automatically disappeared on my mother-in-law's, he says, mother-outlaw's PC. So first, <laughs> what's a transparent proxy? Okay, what, well, um, this is something that ISPs do in order to minimize their their bandwidth usage to their upstream providers and also theoretically to improve the performance and experience of their own users um the idea is they are it, it's called a transparent proxy because the users behind it meaning the ISP's customers you know you and I and everybody for example who has a cable modem or or in some cases uh, a DSL system um we don't configure to use a proxy we just use the ip that we're given and believe that we're connecting directly out to remote servers it turns out however that that's not the case there is a hidden proxy server which is in which the isp has interposed in its network for the purpose of caching so the only reason that an isp would do this is for caching web content again the idea is that for example if you go to the cnn.com's homepage well if i go there i pull the homepage and in the process i use the isp's bandwidth that it's purchasing from its upstream provider remember that isp's are are just internet users and customers like we are they're just bigger so the isp's purchase is the isp is purchasing bandwidth just like we are except they, you know they're bigger so um they buy they're it, aggregating buy the exa- exactly yeah. um however they still want to minimize their overall um bandwidth usage so the idea is that if i go to cnn.com and and pull down cnn's homepage if other isp customers do the same thing this transparent caching proxy will notice the ur at the url that is being retrieved and will also look at the the so-called metadata that came with that page for example the expiration time and the the if the page which it has cached has not expired that is the you know cnn sent it saying uh oh, let this page last for an hour for example that has the added advantage to cnn of of removing the burden from its servers so it's not having to reserve the same homepage you know over and over and over it sends out a a a single copy that has an expiration of for example an hour in the future and then the isp's cache will hold on to it then other isp customers who go to cnn they get it instantly from essentially what is a local copy of that page in the isp's cache now that's the good news when everything works correctly however brian in in grumbling about this noticed that you know sometimes you get stale data that refuses to be purged even if you delete temp files and so forth and 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 the reason is there's nothing you can do locally to force the remote transparent proxy to um to update itself that is it thinks it knows better and 
normally that's the case. That is to say that, you know, normally things are going to work well and and um, and servers will be issuing pages that are pre-expired if they never want them to be cached um, by an intermediate caching transparent proxy. Um, he also t- asks about SSL. The good news is that if you use an SSL connection, unless there's been a the deliberate installation of a certificate in your browser that we have talked about, which is what's necessary in order for an intermediate proxy to be able to intercept your connection, unless that's done, you will avoid the ISP's transparent proxy. Um, I, I, I had some experience with this years ago when I was first developing Shields Up because my own local cable modem supplier, Cox, they use a transparent proxy. And so when I was connecting to Shields Up, I would be getting the IP uh-huh. of the proxy right. and, be, and be testing that, which of course is not what we want. We want to test the, the user's actual machine. So that's why Shields Up runs... Um, customers, you know, pe- people who come to Shields Up through a secure connection specifically to bypass ISP transparent caching proxies, which are unable to intercept secure SSL traffic. And they really don't want to. I mean, they're, you know, the, 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 the notion there is that there's some reason you've established a, a secure connection. And, you know, one being that you want absolute privacy and an end-to-end security between your your browser client and the remote server that you're talking to. Mm-hmm. So he shouldn't worry about it. Well, um, it it does mean you have to that, trust your ISP, I guess. Well, and you know, I, I should say we've got a number of questions that we will be dealing with this week um, that are offshoots from last week's topic about you know ISP spying, privacy, and and betrayal, mm-hmm. um, which caused a great deal of interest uh, um, among our listeners. Mm-hmm. So um, it is the case that that given that you ha- when you have a non secure connection that is non SSL traffic or non VPN traffic that everything that you transit through your ISP is available and visible to them. That's why we didn't like that Opera Mini browser, because that would do the same thing. It would proxy your browsing. But AOL has done this for years. Uh, this was how AOL speeded up browsing. And a lot of ISPs uh, you know, do things like uh, re-encode or recompress graphics and so forth. A lot of times when you get a dial this is the old days of dial-up, but you'd get a dial-up provider would say, Oh, we're faster. We got turbo speed. And that's all they were doing is proxying, caching, and compressing, recompressing. Yes. Yeah, and, and, and you're right. The, the, the thing that's different about the form or Nebuad or Adzilla or all those nightmares we first started talking about last week is that, that in this case, that is in, in, in those cases, ISPs are, are deliberately sharing this information with ah, a third party. Right. And that's not good. Your ISP knows a lot about you no matter what. <laughs> so yeah. You, you really should find one you can trust. However, what you would like is that you would like for it to take a court order for them to divulge right. any information right. rather than, you know, some, you know, a, uh, a, a commercial opportunity to sell, you, you know, a profile of you to, to third party advertisers. Right. 
Tim McCoy in California worries about, quote, acceptable levels of hard drive failure, as if any level would be acceptable. He says, Steve, I've noticed that some hard drives have close to a million seek failures or CRC errors as revealed in the smart system monitor. Oh, this noticeably, he says, affects system performance. This does not seem acceptable to me, but how do we convince manufacturers they should exchange drives with such a high rating? Secondly, Spinrite appears not to work with USB keyboards. Is there an update? So let's take the first part of that. Yeah, um, the it is unfortunately the case that there has been some cost associated with the insane explosion of hard drive storage capability. Um, and, and we've talked about this before. These ECC error correction code, or, or sometimes known as CRC errors, um, are occurring at a much higher level, at a much greater rate than they used to, because the, the, the data is so densely stored now on today's contemporary drives that drives literally depend upon this ECC, the on-the-fly error correction, to correct sectors which are not perfectly readable. It's somewhat troublesome, but it's the way things are. You don't have any choice. Uh, yeah, there have been other instances where where drives are, because of the incredibly high track densities, this is where seek errors are, are coming from, drives are having a hard tra- time staying on track. That is, they, they have the technology to do what's called track following, where the head is is tweaked on the fly to to keep itself over the track. That has to be done because the tracks are so dense that even minute variations in track position cause the head to go off track. It turns out that drives are becoming increasingly sensitive to the vibration of their own chassis that they're mounted in. And I'm seeing now drive manufacturers specifically talking about, you know, like having extra quality tracking technology in order to to help them stay on track. So... You know, these are side effects of, you know, buying a a trillion bytes of data in a small little box. Oh, and uh, as for Spinrite and USB keyboards, it is the case that Spinrite is still using the BIOS, as we've, as we've spoken of, which is universally supported by the older style PS2 keyboards, mm-hmm. most most motherboards will have an option. They, they, they normally call it USB legacy mode or something like that, where you're able to, they're able to provide um, transparent operation of a USB keyboard uh, in the BIOS so that you're still able to use SpinWrite with no trouble. But nor, if, that, if that's not turned on, you just need to go into the BIOS and set legacy mode for USB support, and oh, then SpinWrite should work just fine. That's good to know. That's good to know. Yep. Uh, Jake in Minnesota asks Firefox to forget all about him. Forget I was ever here after every use. It's a little setting in Firefox. Steve and Leo, ever since I got Firefox for the first time, I've been using it with that clear private data option every time I quit. I've set it to clear everything, including cookies. Is this a secure way to browse if I don't mind missing the benefits of using cookies, or am I just fooling myself? Thanks for the great show. It's a huge comfort knowing you guys are there, making sure we stay informed about security issues. Yeah, um, 
that is a, certainly an option for for surfing securely. Um, and I'm I know that Firefox does what it says it's going to do. That is, it it removes all the sorts of histories of of your use which it's otherwise maintaining. Um, and he he mentions it also includes cookies. So you know it it does when you set that it prevents Firefox from storing that data on the hard on the hard drive. It just keeps it in RAM so that when you shut down Firefox, that data is is lost. And and so it's it's absolutely a a useful and and good feature of Firefox. Is it is it a security benefit though? I mean, is it? Um, I mean, it's a privacy benefit. Yes, and I think it's uh, it's it's a very good point and and worth drawing that distinction. I, I think that that you you could argue that there's there are ways that security could be compromised when privacy is compromised, mm-hmm. but I sort of think of them as as separate issues. Right. Um, on the other hand, um, well, no, I, I I was just gonna say you know having someone else take a look at you know URLs that you visited you know how how often when you start typing a URL it pops down a list of of the th- various things that it has in its history that it remember you know um, locations where you have gone to in order to help you with sort of auto completion so clearly there again is a you might say that's a security vulnerability that right. you know somebody else who had physical access to your computer c- c- could see what you've been doing but, you know, it's also certainly a privacy concern. Right, right. Chris W. in Springfield, Virginia, has a note about Firefox 3 and cookies. Stephen Leo, I've been a longtime listener, really like the work you do, and I've been a Spinrite owner since version 3, three versions ago, and now I've been uh, hoping for a Mac version since I just switched to a Mac grin. <laughs> I noticed that Firefox has third-party cookies enabled by default. I was a little disappointed to see that was the case for the sake of the people who need the most help, the non-techies. Why do you think Mozilla did it this way? Is it a nod to advertisers? Why don't they make third-party cookies off by default? Safari does that on the on the Mac. Yes, and Safari is the only brow the only you know popular high-end browser that does have third-party cookies disabled by default. I don't think it's a nod to advertisers at all. I wouldn't I wouldn't believe that the Mozilla folks would be nodding to advertisers. My guess is that. Th- if it caused a problem to ever have third-party cookies turned off, then Firefox could be dinged a little bit uh, and and believed to be less compatible or to have some incompatibility. It is certainly the case that traditionally, historically, all cookies, first-party and third-party, have been enabled by default. And so I just think it's the Firefox people not wanting to break something. I'll give you an example, a really good example. I was very disheartened by it. There's a Firefox extension called Foxmarks that syncs my bookmarks. It doesn't work if third-party cookies are turned off. Yes, and I think we actually have someone mentioning that later in this episode. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> so I think that that's but that it's exactly what it does is it breaks stuff that relies on it and stuff you may not, you know, assume relies on it. I mean, it's, you know, and so for that reason, they probably default to the, this is always the case. People almost always default, unfortunately, default to the, Less secure but more convenient choice. Yes, they don't yes. want to. They don't want to do support. They don't want the calls. Uh, Don and Burbank uh, loved this week's episode, or actually last week's episode on ISP betrayal. I love that. Hi, Steve. Excellent show last week. I'm jumping the gun, but what are some simple ways to thwart Nebuad 
We're going to be talking about more of that next week, right? Now, in detail, we're going to go into the technology of form, which right. is just a it's a it's a horror, right? He says Charter Communications is my ISP, and we talked about that last week that they are, are using Nebuad. Using yep. a proxy like Anonymizer or a simple proxy, would that work? Would a VPN, like public VPN? Can I write a program that can pollute the data stream randomly looking at different web pages? That's interesting. Uh, uh, is there a legal action I could take against Charter? Should I switch my ISP? Is my Yahoo webmail being spied on? Just a suggestion. Could you lay out different levels of thwarting the spying? Level one would be easy. Level two, a little work. Level three, requiring good technology. Uh, level the hardest, but we'll stop spying. What do you think? Well, okay, first of all, the good news is that that any kind of encryption blocks this completely. So it is only the non-encrypted oh, connect. Yes, okay. any kind of encryption. Okay. So SSL using HTTPS, if you're able to, when he asks about... Is his Yahoo webmail being spied on? If you're able to, as you are with Google and Google Mail, to establish an, an encrypted connection to Yahoo's webmail server, then you are absolutely um, safe from any of this eavesdropping. Now, they are currently saying that they are only intercepting port 80 traffic, mm-hmm. meaning that that, for example, SMTP and POP transmissions, that is outgoing mail from you to your ISP's web server, I'm sorry, email server on port 25 or incoming email on, on port 110 or 143 for um, IMAP, those are, I mean, was it, no, 145 IMAP? Uh, 143, I think. That's a good question. Yeah. I think it's 143. Anyway, um, so the the idea being that they're saying that they're only looking at port 80 traffic. I'm worried, uh, frankly, about the notion of email being being profiled in the same way, because think of the wealth of so-called behavioral profiling data that would be available from looking at people's email and doing keyword searches and so forth on that in order to further determine, you know, what, who, who they are, you know, they can say, Oh no, it's innocuous. We know all you're being doing, all that's happening is you're being categorized into, you know, one of a thousand broad categories of, of general interest It's like, okay, but you know, unfortunately it seems that available information is being taken advantage of wherever it's available. So that, that gives me a, a very creepy feeling. Yeah. And but, Google, I mean, look, Google's doing that with your Gmail. There's, there's definitely valuable information in there. Yes. They scan yes. However, Gmail, in, so. in, in, in that case, you know, uh, you know, to address that, for example, Google's doing it with your email in order to show you ads on the, on the Google Gmail pages that are relevant right. to you. Right, right. Right. So so it so there's some containment there. You know, the the entity that you're transacting with knows, you know, about your past usage of email and is saying, look, here's some ads that you may care about. Well, of course, what's different is they're not selling that off to some third party to do with Lord only knows what. Right. Right. So so the bottom line is um, any VPN Um, any SSL connection, anything you do to encrypt your communications 
is going to completely bypass these guys. So and if you yeah, so if good. you use something like anonymizer, or if you used uh, something like um, uh, or the Tor network, Tor, uh, the yep. Boss, um, the, the, these things, the iPhantom technology, all of these are basically encrypted out of from your browser to their uh, host. And of course, you have to trust them because they un- unencrypt and then pass it along. Yeah, there was that wacky little thing too called iPig, which had the unfortunate <laughs> name. I don't know what that it's is. like. It was we talked about it years ago. Internet something. I mean, it, it's an acronym that's unfortunate. IPig is very unfortunate. Yeah, and and it's a uh, it's a f- little freebie you can download, which uses the, which encrypts your connection to them. Um, I remember vetting the security of it, uh, and it's. It's a it's a nice solution. They're not doing a a complete VPN. They're just scrambling the traffic between your machine and their server, mm-hmm. whereupon they let it out onto the internet. But all you really need is you need it just to be encrypted as it passes through your ISP, and once it gets out th- out of your ISP's grip, then it would, for example, go to the IPIG servers. And the thing that's nice about it is that it's it's free. I think there was some bandwidth limitation for how much bandwidth you you could move. So you weren't you didn't want to be doing, you know, big music downloads for that. But, you know, for casual web surfing and email, um that's another option which might make sense. Pretty cool, actually. IPIG. Uh, excuse me. I'm sorry. Just... <laughs> Thank you for the sound effects, Leo. <laughs> A little snort there. <clears throat> Dan Hunt in central Queensland, Australia, has been hunting for the PayPal one-time-use credit card. Hi, Stephen Leo. I've been trying to find the PayPal one-time-use credit card for a couple of weeks. Off and on now, no matter where I look, I can't find it on my PayPal account. I had the same trouble I was kind of searching for, but I found it. He may have other reasons why he can't find it. Earlier this evening, I was having another fruitless search when I clicked on the Upgrade My Account link because I thought, what the heck, maybe it's under there. PayPal wanted me to upgrade to a Premier account. So I could accept high volumes of payment traffic and all that other good stuff. I was about to navigate away when I had a sudden epiphany. What if, I thought to myself, Steve and Leo have different levels of account than I do. Certainly with you buying cool security gadgets, Steve, with your PayPal account, maybe you've been upgraded to handle the traffic level and to probably (laughs) avoid excess fees. My question is, are either you or Leo on basic PayPal accounts? If not, do you know how we pour lowly? Basic account holders can even use the one-time credit cards. I wouldn't think that PayPal would withhold something so useful from basic account holders. Oh, <laughs> but I had little luck finding any information about it in the PayPal help sections. Of course, I could just it could I could just just be that since I'm from Australia, PayPal may not be sharing the cards over there yet. That's what I thought it was. Is it? And, is it? What is it? Okay, that's what my guess is. That's what it is. What I wanted to tell him was that the one the one the one definite place to look is see if you can see PayPal plugin. That seems to be the most visible, apparent, obvious place to look for this. And they're promoting and, that like crazy, by the way. Yes. I mean, yeah. And I mean, well, I, I just logged into my PayPal account this morning to verify where this was located and, and how visible it was. And, they, you know, it came up like you know, a <laughs> full, huge screen in the front of me. So yeah. there was no way to miss that. So so I, I would suggest that Dan take a look look for the PayPal plugin, and that's where the secure card technology is located. Now, I want to take this opportunity to mention a little experience I had 
um, since we talked about the PayPal plugin and about the secure cards. I mentioned during the first time that I discovered it that I enjoyed using a one-time use or single use, as right. PayPal calls it, card f- on a website where um, where they were sort of like forcing me into a subscription yes. monthly renewal thing that I did not want, but there didn't seem to be any way to opt out of it. So I thought, well, that's good. The bad news is they recognized, their, their bot recognized that my expiration date was next month and they snuck in another charge <laughs> before now <laughs> i was really annoyed because first of all this says single use so i was assuming that the car died after its single use it turns out it does not mm. so so what I discovered in today's logon. Oh, that's interesting. Went, so you can, they could use it as long within the uh, time period of before the expiration. Yes. Oh, and that's so not I, single use to me. No, it's not. It's certainly limited use. It's like, you know, this month use, but it's not single use. Yeah. And what's in, and what's interesting then, when I went to the secure cards tab under the PayPal plugin, it shows you all of your still live cards and you have then the option of setting a checkbox to select them and manually close the card so i wanted to inform our listeners that paypal's single use cards are not single use they're they stay alive for multiple uses until presumably the expiration date is is passed and so it is it is it is incumbent upon the user to manually shut down the card when they want it no longer to clear oh boy that's see that's not single use nope and it's called active you have like active cards or or and then you manually go there to deactivate the card wow so anyway it bit me it was it wasn't a very expensive bite but it was annoying and uh, and now I know better, so I wanted to pass it on to our li- to our listeners. And I'm pretty sure we both have Premier accounts. I don't know. Is that the one where you have to give them a bank account to make it a Premier account? What exactly? No, that's that's a verified address account. I don't know exactly what number. You know what what what, what uh, uh, how how the, how they refer to it. What their term is for that. But I'm a I'm a verified paypal user meaning that i had to give them my bank account information and an address and so i have a a verified shipping address which some sellers for example some ebay sellers require you to be paypal verified uh, or they just won't they won't sell anything to you yeah no so i I have that my guess is it is just an australia thing i'm I'm, I'm looking too and i see i'm verified i'm not premier so yeah it's an australia thing And, and if you think about it uh, they, they, that, that makes sense because credit cards are handled differently in every country. Um, they just can't, you know, they, that, that makes perfect sense. I understand. And yet laws and regulations and all right. that mumbo right. jumbo. Right. Um, yeah, by the way, verified is probably a good thing if you're going to do business with anybody on PayPal. Make sure they're Although verified. Although the problem is once you're verified, then you're in that eternal PayPal wants to take money from your checking account right. mode with no way to override that and and have them default to your credit card. So every single time that I do this, oh, and of course the other problem with the with the single use credit card is there's no way to redirect that back to your credit card. It insists upon uh, taking 
from your checking account. Uh, so it's probably not even available unless you're a verified user. That's interesting. Wow. Yeah, PayPal has some frustrations in it. Yeah. It's, it's, like, like I said, there's no company more than PayPal that needs good competition to come along. Yeah. No kidding. And I have to say, though, I really do like Google Checkout. I'm now using I'm using it more and more because it's a it's a simpler form. It's becoming more widely used. Um, you you register yourself in the same way, giving them a, you know, a long life, your own real long life credit card right. and your, your shipping data. But it's a single click checkout where Google provides not only the the, you know, they privatize keep 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 private from the vendor your account information they merely do the electronic transfer but they also get, provide the shipping address so it's just you know it, it saves you filling out a form yet again if you're someone who's buying a lot of stuff physical goods um, over the internet the ebay has announced that they're going to improve the uh, buyer protection on paypal just <laughs> right after i got ripped off <laughs> thank you and well, whatever <laughs> happened with that leo Did, uh-huh. i mean is it is it still? It's still, like, you know, I escalated it all the way to a dispute, and they're investigating it. But I, I don't have very high hopes of getting my money back uh, because the seller had only insured it. I wish I'd paid a little bit more attention. You know, I, I knew enough on eBay to look to make sure that he had a hundred percent rating and had done a lot of transactions. Um, but there was also a little giveaway, which was that he'd only insured the uh, transaction with PayPal for two hundred bucks. It's the seller's responsibility to do that. Uh, and it's a, it was a $2,150 camera at, by the end of the auction. Jeez. And I wish he didn't, I wish he, well, whatever. He's not, he's a crook. He's not going to insure it for anything. I'm yep. surprised he had 200 bucks insurance. He didn't want to spend the extra money on the now, 2000 aren't, aren't, uh, if that was off of your credit card, are you not able it, to it, challenge it, that right. charge? But it wasn't. It was out of my oh. PayPal account. That's why you want to use a credit card. You're exactly right. Had it been a credit card, I'd have no problem. Yep. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's up to PayPal now to decide whether they want to pay me back or not. And I suspect what I'll get is a check for a hundred some bucks, uh, minus their fees out of the 200 bucks insurance. And that's it. Ooh. Yeah. And so they've, you know, because in Australia, they, they, it's, it's interesting because they, they're trying to encourage, uh, they want to make it that you can only pay for eBay purchases with PayPal because they own PayPal and, uh, the right. Australian, uh, consumer commission turned them down. So I think this is in response to that. They're uh, they're adding to the protections. They're increasing the amount that PayPal will be liable if you get ripped off. That kind of thing. Too late for me, however. Yeah, Matt. Uh, his real name is Mariusz, but Matt Sybulski in Newcastle, Ontario, Canada, is asking about Hotspot Shield. Hello, Stephen Leo. I just finished listening to SN one forty nine ISP privacy, and I've been wondering if there could be a bit of hope left for anonymity online. I've downloaded and installed Hotspot Shield from HotspotShield dot com. And ran my computer through Shields Up. Everything except ping reply came back as stealth. And even the unique string that identifies my computer came back as internet connection has no reverse DNS. Even my IP address changes from one that is issued to me by my ISP. Wow. So does that mean I can't be tracked by my ISP? Or if I can, is it then limited uh, somewhat? And what would the limitations be? Also, while using Hotspot Shields, should I be concerned about the tracking technologies that you mentioned on your last episode, nebulize, nebu ads and uh, forms. Please, if I'm missing something, I'd love to hear about it. There's nothing worse than a false sense of security. I agree. I, I, uh, I love your shows and I occasionally revisit them as this is the one show that makes me put my propeller hat on. In fact, sometimes it gets so geeky I need to hear it more than once. Keep up the great work. That's why we have the transcriptions. You can read along. 
I wanted to mention, I wanted to bring this up because Hotspot Shield is a nice-looking solution for exactly this problem. Oh. Uh, it, it is free. There is a, a total bandwidth usage limit. Uh, I believe that they, that they run a, a rolling 30-day window through your usage. And so if, it, if during any 30-day period of time you hit a certain bandwidth cap, then they'll say, okay, no more. But you are able to purchase additional bandwidth. So, you know, their hook is that they, you know, they get you um, into their service by making it free. You download a little client w- which you run in your machine, which redirects all of your traffic encrypted to them uh, very much like the the um, the other similar uh, hotspot type of technology we've talked about before, um, and only if you are a massive bandwidth user do you run across their ceiling, and then if you decide to, you are able to pay in order to get a, additional bandwidth transit. So hotspotshield.com uh, is a solution which, by encrypting your traffic past your ISP as it flows past your ISP prevents you from having to worry about any of this kind of snooping going on. The problem is, it's as with any of these sort of third-party solutions where your computer is terminating, at, uh, and the same as the case, for example, with IPIG, is you're going to see some performance hit because... Um, depending upon their bandwidth and their and how server how busy their servers are, all of the traffic is going to them first, then coming to you, as opposed to going directly to you. So it's it's probably not going to be any faster. Uh, it will be somewhat slower. The question is, you know, how much is somewhat? By the way, uh, Bull Durham in our chat room sent me the address for IPIG. It stands for IOPUS Private Internet Gateway. There we go. It's, That's the, exactly it. Yeah, it's still around. It's I-O-P-U-S dot com is the company that makes the iPig. <laughs> Bad name. But as you say, good good technology. So this is somewhat yeah. similar. How does, how does, I don't understand exactly uh, how Hotspot Shield works. Is it a firewall or is it a VPN? No, it, it's just, it, it, it's, a, it's a lightweight VPN solution. Okay. okay. And, and iPig is not. But has some of the well, same features. Well, no, it, it is also um, the, the the what I remember from IPIG was that the the because he the author and I exchanged um, some dialogue back when I was when I when I was originally checking it out and I mm-hmm. participated in their online forums because um, I wanted to understand it wasn't very well documented so I wanted to understand what it was that he was doing. Um, he there are some instances where. Um, NAT sensitive protocols like FTP would not function. And when I mentioned that to him, he said, oh, that's why it, it, that FTP doesn't work. And I said, uh, yeah. So so there are some things that it'll have problems with because it's just intercepting your traffic and sort of moving your traffic over to their server and then emitting it again. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's just changing the IP on the on the outside of the packets so that they come back to them. The problem is that it's, so it's not performing a full um, packet inspecting NAT operation, which, for example, our NAT routers do. So there are some things that won't work quite, quite right, but things like web serving and uh, an email, will have, it'll have no problem with. Okay. That's the frustration about these solutions is if things don't quite work right, it's kind of like, well... How long yeah. are you going to put up with that before you go, I'm turning this off? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Uh, Carol, I'm sorry, Chris Noble in Wellington, New Zealand notes that some third-party cookies are needed. Oh, here's the, yep, here is the comment. Here's the comment. Hi, Steve. Just listen to your latest episode of Security Now. Heard you, heard you mention about third-party cookies in Firefox 3. I, too, am glad I can disable third-party cookies again. You might like to mention to listeners this will break some very useful add-ons, in particular Foxmarks, uh, which Chris and I both use for syncing bookmarks between different Firefox installs. And Google Reader Notifier for alerting you to news items in your subscribed feeds. New news items. Both of these add-ons require cookies to function. And these are treated by third party as third-party cookies by Firefox. Presumably as they're set without actually being on the respective websites. Which is the exact point of the Google Reader Notifier in particular. The solution is to leave third-party party cookies disabled. But to add... Ah, I'm going to do this right now. Foxmarks.com yep. and Google.com into the exceptions list as allowed cookies, whitelist them on demand. There may well be other add-ons that require cookies in a similar fashion, but these two are probably among the most widely used. Thanks to you and Leo for a fantastic resource in your weekly shows. Please, please keep up the good work. That makes sense. I was going to look for that capability, actually. So, yes, and so, so I mean, and we, we will be talking here before long about cookies uh, in painful detail, uh, coming up with some strategies for people who want a sort of not in your face quick solution and p- there are there are people who are willing to put up to do a little more manual cookie management who who really are more concerned about uh just really not having anyone able to easily track them on the net um and so uh it, this is going to work out well because next week we're going to talk about the form system that has just i mean it is cookie overload on steroids uh, which is what they do to you. Uh, we'll, we'll explain how that works. And then um, not long from now, I'll finally be able to unveil the work I've been doing on, on cookie management at GRC. Uh, and that'll be the forum for talking about some strategies that people will be able to use in general for managing um, their their browser cookies. I'll say I'll defer this to them, but I, I'm really curious as to really how dangerous cookies are and and if they're really, I mean, people really get crazy about cookies and worried about cookies. And I know well, third yes. party cookies are. Um, yeah, they're, uh, and I agree with you, Leo. It's like my feeling is with very few exceptions, like you just mentioned, for example, uh, uh, Fox Marks, you, you just don't need third party cookies. And they're so easy to disable. And and just doing that, and then whitelisting the very few of them right. that you might need solves the problem. And it's just like you know they should be off by default. Right. Well, I've just changed my browser as we were talking to uh, exclude to accept third party cookies from Fox Marks, but no one else. Cool. Joshua Brickner in Loveland, Colorado, has some interesting questions about data erasure. He says, "Hi, Stephen Leo. My question." is regarding recovering erased data on a hard disk drive. I've heard your show that it's uh, possible on your show that it's possible for data recovery labs to glean erased data from hard disk drives even after a 35 pass erase using forensic technology. Did we say that? No. <laughs> I don't think we said <laughs> so, that. So so the first thing I want to do is to correct that mistaken impression from Joshua. Yeah. Um it is, oh, but, 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 but go ahead and I'll do the whole okay, thing at we'll once. Okay, we'll do it all at once. Let's say you have two hard drives, we'll call them A and B. Hard drive A had sensitive data on it, but that data was purposely removed using a 35-pass erase. 
After that, and 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 twelve months later, yeah, I was no able. Kidding. <laughs> to, oh. After that, hard drive A was then repurposed as an everyday non-sensitive drive. Later on, hard drive A is backed up to hard drive B using Time Machine on OS ten or some other backup program. Do the traces of sensitive data left over from before the thirty-five pass erase that are supposedly there get transferred onto hard drive B during the backup, or are they unique to hard drive A? Would both Hard drive A and B need to be destroyed to be truly secure. Just curious. Love the show. So he's asking if you back up a drive and there are forensically detectable traces of previous data on the original, does that get backed up as well? Exactly. That, that's the question he's asking. Okay. So first of all, relative to data erasure, um, it is it we we absolutely know and it, it's been confirmed that if you simply wipe a drive with zeros, for example. You just like do a low-level format of the drive that just writes zeros on the sectors. That that there that it we know that it is possible for that most recent erasure to be penetrated by somebody, you know, a forensic data recovery company that specializes in doing so. However, if you write a couple passes of r- pseudo-random data, just noise, every time you write, you are you are suppressing what was there before. You're like these are like electrical traces that are left around, right? Yes, yes. There, the the idea it, it's like um, imagine an audio tape recording, the old-fashioned reel-to-reel days. If you if you recorded something on audio tape and then you you recorded silence, you re-recorded over the audio tape and you just recorded silence, mm-hmm. it was possible for for technicians to pull the previous analog recording out of the background noise. Right. Right. You know, sort of like sort of like a really, really faint whisper. Yeah. So that because because it was just it was analog data it was written over previous analog data. Well, what's even though hard drives are digital technology, the actual waveforms that are being written are they're they're so tightly packed together that the the the, the square waves meet each other, and you're actually recording something that is more analog like than oh, it is digital. Oh, interesting. So so there's a whisper of the previous data from from before just faintly in the background and if you if you know what the foreground is and you subtract that from from what you are receiving or or reading back you can that whisper is still there very very faint and if you then amplify that you can you can recover from one Certainly, from one prior um, erasure, it is it is not the case, however, that you can do that after you have written random noise a couple times. A couple of times, not even thirty-five, just two or three times. I really yes, two or three, and 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 the so the whisper that you would recover would be the previous noise. And then if you tried to remove that, at that point, it's just there. I mean, two passes is is yeah. is almost certainly enough. Yeah. Okay. Then his second question is, 
if you were to read the data from drive A and copy to drive B, is any of that whisper going to be copied across? And there the answer is an absolute definitive no, because the whole point of a drive is to only return the most recently written data. And it's all digital. So that all of that little whispering I'm talking about, that's that exists only inside the drive. And always what the drive is going to return is nice, clean, digitized results, which is the actual digital data that goes across the the cable to the motherboard. So when when all of this forensic magic is being done, they're not doing it at the regular connector that we connect to um, our when when we interconnect our motherboards to drives. They're in there reading analog data off the heads before the drive has a chance to digitize it back into ones and zeros in order to have a chance to pick up this whispering data, which the drive immediately clobbers and only returns to you what was most recently written on the sector. So there's no way for those whispers to to get across to another drive. It's not going to happen. Don't worry about it. Rob in Southern Illinois is not happy about next generation behavioral tracking and profiling systems. He says (laughs) nobody is, by the way. I'm happy. Well, the people who make them are happy about them. Uh, I don't think they're that happy at the moment because this has really caused a big storm. If they're happy, they should stop being happy right now. Um, He says, uh, hi, Stephen, Leo, regarding your podcast about ISP betrayal. I'm very disturbed by this technology. If access is given to all traffic, email and as an example, where a lot of data can be gathered and used for who knows what. Uh, the majority of PC users do not understand email is plain text in most cases. This technology would give access to all kinds of information in emails, including usernames, passwords, personal information, confidential information, etc. This is plum scary to me, both personally and professionally. This technology should be stopped, in my opinion. Thanks for the awesome podcast. P.S. Steve Spinwright saved the day many times since I purchased the software. Keep up the great work. And can I just say one thing? If if you're sending email and not thinking of it as just like sending a postcard, you've got the wrong idea anyway. You're assuming your email's secure. Come on. Right? Yeah, although I think the point that Rob is making, and, and this is, I think, what really put a chill in people, is that is that when an ISP begins this kind of profiling, they're really on a slippery slope. I mean, they're they're trying to say, we're just a bandwidth provider. We're not going to prevent porn or spam right. or any uh, or hacking or any kind of obnoxious behavior. We're just a common carrier. And there's a formal definition for what a common carrier is. And and part of what you're uh, essentially they're saying, we're taking no responsibility whatsoever for the content. We're just we're just providing you the bandwidth. Well, suddenly now they're saying, ah, but we're going to make some money right. by by selling profiles of you to right. a third party. Right. Well, that really does change the nature of their relationship with their customers. Well, I agree with you 100 percent, but. Even if none of this were happening, if I mean, anybody who sends data through email is asking for trouble because it's not just your ISP. It goes through a bunch of servers and it's unencrypted. It's in the clear. Yes. And, and you might know, you might also 
uh, note that even if you had a secure connection to your ISP or to some even a third party email server, well, when it's collected by the other end, right. it's going to be in the clear. That's why the so, only, you know, if you're not encrypting your email, it's you, you must consider it a public, you know, publicly visible. It's like sending a yes. postcard. Yes. If, if you are not doing end to end encryption where you encrypt it before it leaves your machine, it's a it's a pseudo random blob of noise during its entire transit between multiple email servers. And then your recipient receives it as a blob of pseudo random noise, which they then decrypt. In you know at their machine right. back into plain text. That's the only way for email to be safe. PGP or the like. I end use to, I, end to end. Yes. Yeah, I use a GNU. Uh, pretty. It's called the GNU Privacy Guard (GPG). It's free. It's open source. And uh, and you know if, if for instance my uh, the guy who does our um, uh, our Twitch site, Gordon Hayden, he's a great programmer. He's in Australia. Drupal expert. He said, "Can you send me the uh, root?" Uh, password for the server because I'd like to upgrade PHP. Well, you better believe I encrypted that email to him. You just, I mean, email is not secure. So let, let's not assume it is secure or it's suddenly become insecure because of your ISP. It never has been. Hey, speaking, this is a good segue, actually. Time to mention before we get to our 12th question and more email tracking. Uh, well, it's these, these in, invisible little... Uh, graphics in the email that spammers use. We're going to talk about that in a second. But first, let me remember or remind you, let me remember to tell you about Astaro, A-S-T-A-R-O dot com, makers of the the best. I just read a review in SC Magazine. of uh, They tested a bunch of UTMs. And man, did Astaro five stars in every category. The best unified threat management system anywhere. Astaro Security Gateway. And among other things it does, and this is why you want this, is it will transparently, automatically encrypt your outbound email, will sign it, will decrypt encrypted inbound email without any intervention from your users. They won't even know that's what's happening. That's the only way to do it. You can't rely on them to do it. Using OpenPGP or SMIME, uh, this is the kind of thing you want. That's just the beginning. Of course, you get a great firewall. You get intrusion protection. Um, you, you know, you get what you'd, you know, three kinds of virus filters, two for email and one for the web, all the stuff that you would expect from a unified threat management system, but a lot more too. You get VPN, SSL VPN, which makes it very easy for your end users. Um, anti-phishing, you get web content filtering, you get uh, anti-spyware, you get instant messaging and peer-to-peer control on and on and on. The Astaro Security Gateway version 7. It's available right now just for you. Try it for free in your business by calling 877 the number 4 Astaro. 877 the number 4 A S T A R O. There's a free version for home users. And if you're at all interested, I vis- invite you to go to the site astaro.com and read this review from SC Magazine. It's it is, you know, if you don't trust me, trust them. They gave it a rave review. If you're a, if you're one of those poor folks using a Cisco PIX appliance and the PIX got discontinued, check on the website. They show you how you can recycle the PIX so it doesn't impact uh, the environment and get a big security, a big discount on a Starry Security Gateway to replace your PIX. They uh, scale to up to ten devices, so as your business grows, so does your security. A Starro Security Gateway, it's the best. 
Visit them at astaro.com or call them right now for your free trial. 877, the number four, Astaro. We thank them so much for their support of security now. That's the way to do it. If you encrypted uh, automatically at a gateway, then you don't have to wait. You know, you don't have to, you know, I get all these emails all the time from, you know, lawyers mostly. With the, You've seen these, Steve, the long signature yeah. at the end that says, if you receive this email in error, destroy it immediately. This is confidential, blah, 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 blah. Like that protects them in any way. If, yeah. they're, if they're so worried, why aren't they encrypting? You know, please just encrypt it. Uh, the problem is that not, not everybody does it. And so these solutions like Astaro is a great idea because it just does it automatically. You don't have to know about it. You know, it gets the keys for the people you're writing to. Um, and if you're doing it within the corporation, of course, you should all be, all corporate emails should be encrypted just automatically. Question 12. Mark DiNardo, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, wonders about possible new trackers in emails. Steve, in getting copies of email to my BlackBerry, the BlackBerry doesn't offer HTML viewing of email. By the way, enterprise device, that's why. Good thing. Yep. So I can see the email source. I've noticed a company called MX Logic. This is the company that we subcontract our corporate email spam scanning to is supplying graphics on several emails, but the name of the graphic is blah, 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 images slash transparent GIF. Yeah, but notice it's portal.mxlogic.com. Okay, so the, the, the graphic is coming from their yes. site. Why would an email have a transparent graphic? Is this another counter tracker scheme? I'm also a bit disturbed. The Outlook, Outlook Express, and Windows Live Mail won't let me read my mail as text only, so I could see these types of hidden graphics. And finally, if I may say, I'd just like to say I drive an hour each way to work daily and listen to Security Now and several other netcasts provided by Leo and Twit.tv. I enjoy the way you and Leo share your knowledge. I'm a 50-plus-year-old geek who's been able to take his hobby with computers and make a career of it in the corporate world. Yay, Mark. Also proud owner of Spinrite and found it very useful over the years. So, yes, this transparent GIF, you see him a lot now. Well, yes, and this is absolutely tracking and this is why I'm so down on third-party cookies. This is, I mean, this is what third-party cookies allow: is that, is that when your when your browser opens this image, it's going to it's going to pull this, and this mxlogic.com is is going to know that you viewed the file. Now, now we have to presume that that uh, he said that this MX logic is this is the people that is that this company his corporation is having do their um their spam scanning so what's a little disturbing is in the process of scanning the spam right. they are they're modif- yes they're modifying the contents of the email which is passing through their spam scanner um and we don't know why now maybe this is part of their feedback they um you know essentially this since it's called transparent.gif we have to assume that it, there's no visual content there in fact it's deliberately transparent so that it doesn't show up in a normal html viewer but what that means is that when the email is viewed their server will receive a little ping now there's no other information in the url so it's not clear you know what information they're going to get except they're going to get the ip of the of the um of the reader of the email at the time that that email is is opened and read 
So it's hard to know, you know, why they're doing this, but it is a little annoying that they're modifying the email which they are scanning. That's, you know, I'm sure it's in the fine print of, of their agreement somewhere. Um, but it certainly is the case. I mean, these were called web beacons when they first appeared, and apparently this is still going on. There are there are websites that put these these you know either single you know one by one pixel um, so that they're not very visible or they're transparent, and they're they're used specifically for third party servers to transact third party cookies for the purpose of tracking. Yeah, I mean the spammers do this too. Um, so and and there are services. So they know, so they know so if you're, you're somebody. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be by your browser because most, and unfortunately, most email programs will render an HTML email. They use your browser's engine. In the case of Windows, they use Internet Explorer. In the case of the Mac, they use the WebKit. But they they render it using the browser engine, and and at that point, they pull that graphic down. They they ping the server and say, "Yeah, he's reading it." Yep, got it right now. He's open. He's opening it up right now. Of course, and and they, and and they know that then it's a real person yeah. that they've got, and, and not just some you know random made up email address. Right. That, I mean, you just you just verified that you that you exist. That's the chief value to a spammer, of course. Um, and and that's why I I know you recommend this. I certainly do it. Is turn off uh, HTML preview in your uh, email program. In fact, I I don't I don't I really I, it's hard to get people to get this that HTML is a bad thing for email for Uh, so many reasons for security, for privacy, you know, you can hide the, the, where the link comes from. That's how phishing works because the, the link isn't apparent. You can't see what the link is. It just looks like a good link. Um, It's, it's fat. It makes email messages much, much bigger. Um, There's just, it's, there's no reason for HTML email to exist. And yet we're moving inexorably in that direction that all email is going to be HTML mail. Yeah, it's too bad. Yes, it is. And of course, it can also carry scripts. And the last right. thing you want is your email to be executed. Jeez. I mean, who, who thought that was a good idea? Uh, <laughs> now, let's see. In, in my, in they wouldn't be up in Redmond, would they? Well, to their, to their credit, they have, uh, over time, they've disabled this uh, more and more features of uh, email. And, and what they've done lately in Outlook and Outlook Express and Windows Live Mail is it will not display a graphic automatically. Right? Yeah, and that only took what uh, ten years? It took about a while, a but they. But I think they. You know, now of course, what do I get? A lot of calls to my radio show saying, "Why won't my graphics display? I don't understand it. They oh, should yeah. display." And then <laughs> uh, now, it, I think there's a setting in uh, in Apple Mail because my Apple Mail does not display graphics. I don't know if it's default or not, but it, my Apple Mail does not display graphics by default. Um, you have to push a button that says load images. So in those cases, if there's a transparent graphic or a one-by-one GIF there, th- that's protecting you, right? They won't show up. Yes. Okay. Yes, correct. Well, I just want to make sure that was the case. Yep. They won't They won't show up, they won't be rendered, and they will not make a query out to some other random server saying, ping! Hello! I'm here! Honey, I'm home! <laughs> All right, Steve. We've gone through 12 great questions. We thank everybody for sending those questions. It's really nice to have them. Um, if you want to ask questions for that, we don't do it every episode. Every other episode, they can go to grc.com slash security now and ask them there, right? Uh, it's actually grc.com slash feedback. Feedback. Okay. Now, if you GRC. go to grc.com slash security now, that's where you'll find all of the Security Now episodes. Well, 150 strong. There are 16 kilobit versions for people who have bandwidth issues. 
There are uh, there are transcripts, text transcripts. I think that's a great way to read along while Steve talks to understand it better. Many people like to have that visual input along with the auditory input. Um, and don't forget, GRC.com is the same place you go to find Spinrite. Steve's incredible hard drive maintenance utility, must have, and all of his great freebies, including Shields Up, Wismo. Uh, don't shoot the messenger, un- or shoot the messenger, actually. <laughs> Unplug and pray. <laughs> you do want to shoot the messenger, and many, many other great programs. A lot of them, though, the good news is, and I'm sure you're happy about this, no longer necessary because of changes Microsoft has made to Windows, perhaps to some degree in response to your criticisms. No, I don't think that they're responding to me at all. I just think Ooh. they're they're moving forward. But for what it's worth, you know, people who are able to use all the freeware that I've written had the benefit of these improvements years before Microsoft got around to it. Right. So exactly, that's certainly been good. And um, and there's still places I, where you want it, like uh, turning off uh, Universal Plug and Play and stuff like that. Uh, yes, still very valuable. You'll find it all there. GRC.com. Next week we're going to I warn people now have your <laughs> have your have your propeller beanie hats uh handy it's going to be a very deep technical but really interesting episode to we're, we're going to go into the form p h o r m system mm. which is arguably the the most horrific of the of the systems I've looked at closely that supports ISP betrayal of their customers uh, and see exactly what it takes to track somebody uh, who doesn't want to be tracked. It turns out uh, what they do is just amazing. Oh, wow. And it bypasses, it bypasses third-party cookie protections. Wow. This is, this is good stuff, and I love it when we get geeky. So get ready. Get your propeller hats on, kids, for next week. have a episode. full geek episode next week. <laughs> All right, great. Steve, thank you for being here. We really appreciate all your help and the great show you do. And we'll see you next Thursday on Security Now. Security Now. I'm Jamie Davis, the pod medic from the MedicCast podcast. And I'm Mark Peltze from Futures in Biotech on Twit TV. We're here to ask you a really important question. Are you at risk for deep vein thrombosis or DVT? I was working on my computer for days on end. Little did I know that this would almost kill me. You know, Mark, you're right. The CDC reports that between 30,000 and 60,000 people in the U.S. die every year from complications from DVT, a blood clot that forms in a large vein, usually in your legs. The sad part is this is almost completely preventable. So if only I'd stretched my legs every couple of hours or tapped my toes, I would have avoided three days of intensive care, a week in the hospital, and five weeks on disability. Absolutely. So for the listeners of this podcast, if you're sitting at your computer right now playing a game, if you're on a long drive listening to this show, make sure that you take the time to get up and walk around every couple of hours. And if you're sitting down, move your legs around, tap your toes or tap your heels. For more information on DVT and prevention, look at the link for the CDC in the show notes for this podcast. I'm Jamie Davis. And I'm Mark Peltier. We want you to be a long-term listener to this podcast.